little maid working in the garden. Not your mind, come riding by. As I may, don't want to marry. Poor little maid, won't you marry me? This gift that he had, this, this range of farmers and people who were growing um, heirloom seeds that they had saved, foods that were distinct to the region, and who were growing them based on the, the quality of their land, the place where the sunlight hit. It was a consciousness of the land itself, an awareness and an understanding. for seven years longer. No man on earth will marry me. Perhaps your love on me drowning as a We are more alike than we are different, but I often say there is no box. So we always talk about think outside of the box. There really is no box. And if we see that it, there is no box and we can come to the table and really listen to how others, such as what Apple Shop and the Culture Hub and Lecture County and all the surrounding counties and the surrounding you know, municipalities here have worked together around a common issue of needing community and needing communal spaces and wanting to own that and wanting their voices to not only be heard, but their voices to have power beyond power. I think that transcends all communities throughout our nation. He pulled his hand over my pit pocket. If I were and small, with his own ring, you plant them on my finger. Hello there. Thanks for tuning in to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and on this episode, we'll hear from two Southern women who are using words to craft healing and comfort in the rural communities where they come from. First, we'll hear from Salem Green, a writer and activist working with the Black Belt citizens in Uniontown, Alabama, to fight environmental, economic, and racial injustices. And we'll hear about how Green uses writing to heal community members along the way. Then we'll hear from Ronnie Lundy, an Appalachian writer from Corbin, Kentucky, who talks about her book, Vittles, and the people, landscapes, foods, and stories that led her to create this homage to Appalachian food. While Green and Lundy work in communities that might look very different from the outside and use writing towards slightly different ends, their commitments to the rural landscapes, foodways, traditions, and health of their communities shows us just how much we have in common as rural people across this country and across this world. Salam visited Letcher County this spring as a part of the Culture Hub celebration, and Mimi Pickering sat down with her in the studio to record the following interview. 
Thank you for having me. My name is Salem Green. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I do work in Uniontown, Alabama, which is in Perry County, the Black Belt of Alabama. So tell me a little bit about Uniontown. And why why are you there? What are you doing there? <laughs> well, Uniontown has had some environmental injustice. Coal ash um, came in um, some years ago. And as a result of that, um, we have seen some issues with um, our environmental um, water and toxic issues that have come in. Also, we have several factories in industry that are um, really are causing some of the same environmental issues as well, such as water sewage. We do not have a water sewage plant. And so we have activists such as the Black Belt Citizens Group that activates for uh, environmental injustice throughout Perry County and the Black Belt. And the coal ash that, that came in, is that um, was that from the big, tell me a little bit of, more about that. Was that from the TVA spill? Yes, it was from the TVA spill, um, the Tennessee Valley Authority. And um, after that particular area and community decided, no, we do not want this in our community. What happened was that they found a location in Perry County and brought um, that same coal ash that was <laughs> the community um, in the Tennessee Valley Authority or through the Tennessee Valley Authority said they did not want in their community to Uniontown, um, to Perry County, actually came down train tracks and went through out their areas. And as a result of that, um, it went through a cemetery as well. So there's some environmental um, injustice that's going through the cemetery, which is located in close proximity to where the coal ash plant is as well. So the um, history of the coal ash is absolutely, it uh, magically was not toxic as it came down <laughs> 65 through Tennessee to Alabama. And, um, and so the people are really fighting against making sure that we have healthy environments, healthy land and healthy water as well. Tell me a little bit about people here in our area might not really know much about the Black Belt, or, but I know it's his long history and uh, pretty amazing area. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, Black Belt of Alabama, absolutely long history. We're looking at 19 to 22 counties um, in lower Alabama, rural, rural Alabama. People are beautiful, beautiful people. Uniontown has maybe about 1,900 people in the Black Belt. About 90% are African Americans. Um, there's maybe a, a third who are illiterate. And you'll find health disparities, um, issues with illiteracy in the Black Belt as well. But what you will find as well, I'm from the Black Belt. I grew up in a place called Greensboro, Alabama which um, is maybe about 20 minutes from Uniontown where I'm doing the environmental work. And you'll find um, people who are hard workers. Um, there is industry that includes fish. Uh, they have catfish plants. They have catfish industries. They have also industries with um, chicken plants and those types of things as well. But the people are beautiful. Um, we're looking at a, a strong, rich heritage in the Black Belt of art, history, particularly storytelling and oral history. Also, beautiful um, people who are doing great things as far as making sure that we bring back those small town feel. We bring back kind of making sure that we have health um, issues that uh, some health issues that have been going on. So we have people who are fighting for that as well in the Black Belt. Black Belt got its name from the soul. Soil is um, um, rich um, black soil that's part of the ground. And that's par uh, partly part of the reason why we are fighting environmental injustice in areas such as the Black Belt. Because when any type of environmental 
agency brings in any type of agent and it does not allow to go through the soil, what you find is that there is a threat or a fear of a threat of where is it going to go if it does not penetrate through the soil and our soil does not allow that to happen. And so does it go back into the water? Does it go back into um, standing on top of the soil so it goes back eroding into people's land, property, yard, etc.? So um, though that area is beautiful, it's not an area to bring in any other environmental type of agent such as landfill, um, such as the coal ash that the landfill brought in because our soil does not allow for it to penetrate through that way that others areas may do as well. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was it um, cotton-growing country at one point? Yes, cotton-growing country at one point. Um, you will um, Right now, you, you can come through and you can see just lush areas of um, cotton fields and agriculture, produce, um, farmers. We have the great thing about the Black Belt is that we have a rich um, heritage of farmers who have everything from corn to okra to all kinds of uh, farmland as well. Um, the Black Belt also in Alabama um, not only have is full and rich with agriculture, but at this point we are lacking economic industries as well because of what's happening with farmers, particularly black farmers, and not having the same opportunities to continue their farming or having the resources to continue that farming as well. And because the Black Belt is a high area that's rich in agricultural resources and a lot of economic um, infrastructure is around farming, we're finding that we want to get back to that and we want those resources to come back in the Black Belt. Yeah, there's sort of a whole history that's come to light fairly recently about the way that black farmers have been treated historically, I know. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, As well as, and what we're finding in the Black Belt with the historic ways that um, black farmers have been treated, um, also we're finding that in the Black Belt, it's an area where women, as a result of how farmers have been treated, many of the farmers have lost their land or lost their property or have had to downsize their property. We're finding that many of those farmers who were male no longer are able to continue to be breadwinners for the family. So women are having to go do that as well. And because there are not, there's not a lot of industry to go do that, there are not a lot of skilled um, roles that women can play, we're seeing women who are traveling anywhere from 40 miles to sometimes 60 miles or 70 miles to find work in healthcare and other spaces um, so that they can then, you know, make sure that their family is eating and making sure that we were taking care of our family where before was more male dominated through agriculture and farming. Great thing, ways that we're looking is it with um, Uniontown, but also in the Black Belt and some of the work that I do is looking at how we can now support women who are women farmers. We have some organic farmers. We have also women who are part of the farming industry who are looking at ways that they can um, use their organic farms through uh, vegan, uh, through helping with vegan chefs and helping with the vegan bakeries and those types of things. So we're looking at ways that we can actually empower and excite and inspire to use what you already have and that you have the land, you have the property. Also, we want to transfer the knowledge of those skills so that we can share it and use it for economic advantages. Sounds uh, similar to this area in lots of ways, mm-hmm. kind of dealing with similar things. Yes, yeah. yes. So I can imagine. So what what was the reaction in Uniontown when the coal ash was proposed to be um, brought in? I'm sure, you know, we have a lot of jobs versus the environment, um, jobs versus our health kind of questions. And was that was that an issue there at that time? 
Well, I can't speak for uh, Uniontown. I I um work there and I act do some activism work there, but I don't live there. But some of the response, of course, was how is this going to affect our health? Another response is the education of knowing that it was coming. Like there was not a lot of um, foreknowledge about this coming and what it was going to actually do for the community. Was it going to be an uh, asset for the community? Was it going to be something that the community could, could look uh, to as far as jobs, as continuation of jobs? And was the industry also, how were they going to put, you know, their tax base back into the community? All those things that the community looks uh, were, were looking for and hoping for wasn't at first communicated. Also, um, once we did get it communicated, government and through um, many politicians and many of our commissioners, we went to some of our local officials and talked to those local officials about what can we do now that we have the coal ash and now that we see that the coal ash is not doing what it needs to do as far as going into the soil and penetrating the soil, how can what are we to do with this waste? What are we to do with the things that we uh, know that we propose may be happening with the community? And so all of that is what's happening now through Black Belt citizens, um, through other groups as well. We are looking at ways to activate, um, to advocate better, but also to just really communi- uh, communicate with the community on awareness of what's happening, on awareness of what's going on. We have different people who are coming in to test our soil, test our water, different universities that are coming in to do research on this entire process and communicate through forums and conversation uh, spaces that they're holding for the community as well. So what what have been some of the impacts that um, that people are, are talking about now that they feel that the Black Belt Citizens is working with? Well, right now, when I'm talking to people in the community and working with the Blackville citizens, our president, um, Esther Calhoun, and Vice President Ben Eaton, and other officers who speak about this, and I only can speak about what they have said, is that they've experienced many people who have neuropathy, many people are experiencing depression. There's a whole lot of stress around what's happening as well. But some of the medical things that uh, medical ailments, everything from neuropathy to arthritis, we have cancer issues. Uh, We have issues with kidney problems that we did not see before. So they're much more prevalent as well. We also are having issues with working with our health department as well as mental health services where there are not as much access to mental health um, services. Also, there is not a health clinic in Uniontown as well. And as a result of that, we're really having a difficult time or a challenge in getting uh, data and statistics on exactly what are some of the health issues that are affecting the community. And along with those disparities, we're looking at ways to research that better. And that means we're looking at ways that we can collaborate with the health entities that are in the county, which are not always um, apt to communicate quickly or effectively uh, with us as well. So those are the challenges is we're seeing all kinds of ailments, all kinds of diseases that are are way more prevalent. And we're also seeing a whole lot of mental health issues um, that were not there before or have heightened or as, or as a result of what we have read and researched of what happens when environmental issues are brought into a community, with, when environmental plagues are brought into the community. And so we're looking at ways to... Um, how can we get support and resources in those areas, but also looking at alternative ways as well. Um, and I think that that's part of what the citizens are doing. Well, tell me about um, your work there. It sounds like it's a little different than 
than um, what we think of sometimes. <laughs> yes, my work there <laughs> is a little different. I have a business called the Literary Healing Arts um, Business, and I help support people in expressing their stories through writing and through poetry, using um, the healing power of words to heal your life and to transform your life. And so some of my work there is really supporting activists. I do Heal the Healer workshops. So those people who are everyday Black Belt citizens, librarians, the uh, everyone who is uh, the officers, whomever it is, who are the everyday people who are out there advocating and who are working diligently or may be um, totally not able to do any of those types of things but are affected by it. So those are the healers in the community. So I come out and I do Heal the Healer workshops, trainings, sessions, and cultivate sacred spaces and healing circles through writing and through poetry and storytelling uh, for the community. Uh, it started off just me doing it with some of the Black Belt Citizen officers. Then it started off as an offering for the community. And now it is branching off to see how that we can now do this for women in the community who are primarily the quote-unquote health practitioners, but give them those resources as people come to them on how they can better help other people heal based on how they've healed, whether that's through um, traditional practices, giving them resources to medical facilities, resources to um, health um, questions, that answering health questions that may, they may have, or sitting down with them and talking about, let's share your story in a safe space. That's, a, that's really amazing. How did that get started? Was there, how was they, the rec, how was it recognized the need for something like what you're doing? Well, I actually started the business many, uh, maybe two or three years ago. And um, after I went through a, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I had not been writing. I've been working in corporate America and in education for maybe 15 years. And I went through a really, really bad divorce. And um, I decided after that divorce to find a writing class to actually have some support, female support. So I found a women's writing class and I started writing on this lady's red couch for maybe two years. And I said, I wanted to take this red couch to other women like myself so they can heal their lives. And who otherwise could possibly not afford traditional therapy or a traditional creative writing class, you know, who maybe didn't live in, a, in an urban area that offered these services. I wanted to be the one to help them heal their own lives by using their voices. So I started doing what I call Red Couch Writers heal, Healing Circles and getting trained um, through different entities on racial healing, on um, non-traditional practice of therapy. I'm an artist in residence for the University of Alabama at Birmingham's Hospital through arts and medicine. So I do poetry and writing for trauma patients and dementia patients. So I've gotten trained through that. And so um, started talking. I'm from the Black Belt. My mom still lives there. I have property in Uniontown that we're talking about. I love the Black Belt. It's part of where I believe I've got my cultural history to tell stories and to write and to do poetry the way that I do it in a way that I believe is, is for African-Americans, is for black people. And I wanted to take it to them and see if it would be a better support for them or at least support them in their everyday of what they're doing. And what have you found in doing the work? Um, doing the work is really challenging <laughs> because people have to do the work. And part of bringing anything in and saying, okay, let's heal ourselves, sometimes is not the first thing that we think about if we're on the ground, front, 
um, frontline people. And most of the time, the people in the Black Belt, wonderful community that I live in and I'm a part of, are front on the front lines. It's always a hyper, um, sometimes hyper atmosphere. And so bringing it in at first was okay, yes, we know we need healing, but how are we going to find time to heal? You know, it's like, it's like, okay, I'll get healing once I, you know, am in the hospital and, you know, I can't come to the, to a traditional space. But after I was able to come out and actually do some of this uh, work that, uh, that I do with them, we were able to see how cultivating these sacred spaces is something you can do in your home, but it's something you already are doing with family members, with your neighbors, when people call you on the phone and they're like, hey, Miss so-and-so, you know, I'm dealing with this. And you, you sit there for 15 minutes, you know, you have just done a healing circle. You know, when you help someone write their own story and you see that it does not take all day, but even if it does take a length of time, that length of time is when someone has listened to you and now you have a story that you can share with the next person that comes along. So I think, and I'm very excited that the community has seen the value in that because they've asked me to continue at ways or try to think about ways to do a women's organization that focuses on women as healers and all kinds of areas to support what women want to do in the community. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, have they um, decided to put stories together to publish anything or um, tell their stories to a larger group? I think at this point, we're really grassroots with what we're doing, the organizing around stories, the organizing around healing, the organizing around women as leaders. I don't know what we want to do with them. I think my space, my um, entire um, goal and value that I bring is in is to hold space. I'm a space holder. So I bring in the ability to hold the space and create a sacred space. And out of that sacred space, a community that's part of that determines and tells me what they want to do with their stories. Oftentimes right now, even in some of the spaces that I'm doing throughout other communities, is that people are finding they really want a confidential space. So often people come in and we want to now take your stories and publish them and have a one-off. There's no spaces where it's embedded and it's continuous and where it really is confidential, where we say it's sacred. So um, I think at some point we're looking at how we can do a project or do a storytelling book or all of those wonderful things we see out there. And I'm excited to get Black Belt stories, stories of women or stories of um, Southern rural women um, out there and to also help support Southern uh, rural women and the value of what their stories are, to get paid for telling their stories, to see their stories as, you know, valuable beyond we have coal ash, we have a sewage spill. Those are the stories that we get all day long. But can we get the story of, you know, Miss Betsy who sits on her porch, who knows every single history about the school and was a teacher? And can we get those stories that are so rich that we may lose if she's no longer around? And can we also let Miss Betsy see the value of that other people want to hear from you? You are as important as this other person who's on television telling this story. And we can cultivate those spaces for them. Or if I can help support in cultivating those spaces for them, then I think that would be a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think that's something we've found in, you know, here at Apple Shop in the work we do in, in helping people to tell their stories. And then, you know, to it, it's been so empowering for mm -hmm. 
those folks involved. And then when we do a radio piece or a film or something, and they can speak to their neighbors and an even broader circle of people, it really means it's really meant a whole lot. Yes. And our hope is to partner and collaborate with the entire Black Belt, other spaces in Alabama that are doing storytelling or poetry or writing or any um, activist types of work. We're wanting to collaborate and partner. Part of the women's organization is wanting to do that. I know part of what I do with the literary healing is to partner. Is we, we cannot do this alone. We want to see how other spaces have brought together their stories and how they've used those stories and not just as, as healing tools, but also as byproducts for activism so that others can see really who you are. Like we are more, like I said, we're more than the sum of the parts um, as well. Um, just today, um, me being here, I was sitting on the porch <laughs> at someone's house and then they said, come on, you got to come out. You know, he's telling the story and told this really great story about the time that he um, saved an elephant downtown, <laughs> you know, Weisberg. <laughs> I'm like, really? Did that really happen? Yes, it did. You got to hear it. So it's those types of things that we don't want to lose. And also we want the community and the communal atmosphere that comes from sharing stories and sharing our writing and also the confidence we gain from knowing oh yes this is Alabama's Black Belt's voice we don't need to change it to become what media or the representations you know deem that we need to do yeah Mm -hmm. that's great Mm -hmm. I mean I think it's um, a lot of similarities to Appalachia and the way we're presented and represented, you know, other in the national media or whatever. I mean, I do remember the Uniontown story and, you know, and it was sort of like the national response was, why would those people want that, you know, (laughs) and no context or no understanding that maybe those people don't want that. Yes, Yes, they do not want that. (laughs) Yes. But it was kind of like, oh, they're pitiful, you know, they're just going to take this thing and just uh, obviously that wasn't the whole story absolutely I think the stories that we see of people in poverty or people who we um, judge as being in poverty sometimes are one-off stories um, like you mentioned and it's half of the story it's the whole story is in Uniontown people do not want environmental hazard hazards we do want you know clean water <laughs> we do want you know a healthy environments for our children we do want the community um, to smell beautiful when you walk through we we do want our, our clean streets and we want um, industry to come in that's going to be a viable asset to the community that's what the community wants and when we have any community or any industry that comes in that is atypical to what the community wants then we they, the community puts up a fight and that's what they're doing fighting for health and justice um through what the environmental injustice has uh deemed that they need to do so i think also seeing what the fight looks like and then also the vision for what union town can be will can happen through storytelling can happen through those persons who are on the front lines actually advocating for their own healing 
advocating for their own visions of what the future can be. It's an opportunity to now we can create the town. We can bring in partnerships that we value as important to us. You know, we can also tell the truth. But as we tell the truth, we can also help our children to see that there's opportunity beyond what today looks like. Um, We also can make time for our own health and make time for our own boundaries so that when it is time that we go on those front lines, that we have the energy and we have the spirit to make sure that we're doing it effectively and we have the right people alongside us doing it as well. That sounds great. Mm -hmm. And so what what brought you up to Whitesburg, Kentucky? And, you know, it is Whitesburg and it's very white and you're coming from a very black community. And it seems like um, there's so much that divides us these days in our kind of national conversation. But but everything you've been describing, you know, could be applicable here or much of it, you know, and and the, the way you are healing is something that we need here, too. Excellent point. That's the first thing I said when I was driving in. It's, I feel like I'm at home in rural Alabama, except for you know the elevation, you know, and the, and um and the and the and the way everything was looking. So what brought me here was Ben Fink with Apple Shop and the Culture Hub Celebration in Lecture County, and um, as part of our hopes in Uniontown, the Black Belt, and beyond is to look at ways that we can do some type of cultural exchanges, some types of ways that we can share and transfer knowledge between, because what is happening here, what is happening here in white community and a predominantly white community and a predominantly black community are exactly the same. We're looking at institutionalized um, systems that are strategically and intentionally coming into areas where there is extreme poverty and taking advantage of the land, the community, and the people. And some of the same parallels between health, between economy, between industry, between thought patterns, the despair, (laughs) all of those things, I can see as, as direct parallels. But my kind of get me here, what got me here is knowing that that cultural hub was happening, being invited to see exactly how exchanges between communities have happened and also how we um, can do some of those same things in a predominantly black community alongside a predominantly white community. I think that would be beautiful. And while I was here talking to some wonderful people I um, was staying at a wonderful house with a wonderful people, um, Malcolm, who does um, Humans of Central um, Appalachia, who is doing awesome work. And I thought that mirrors exactly what we're thinking about or what I'm wanting to do in the Black Belt, what the community that I talk to in the Black Belt are doing. I can't speak for Black Belt citizens or anyone, but I can speak for the everyday community that I work with and the ladies that I see and my family who lives there. And I'm thinking exactly some of the disparities that you're facing, some of the hopes that were lost And now some of the hope that you have, that is the mission. So while I'm here six hours from home and um, (laughs) loving the community, I'm here to learn. I'm here to kind of be a conduit, to be a fly on the wall, to hear what your secrets are, to kind of gain some transferable uh, knowledge and to hopefully have some collaborative contributions that come away with how can, what's the next of us working together? 
uh, working alongside of each other because the politics are the same. You know, like you said, just white folk and black folks. You know, sometimes I'm seeing white folks vote against their own interest, seeing black folks in Uniontown vote against their their, their own interest as well. And it's a corrupt system is the reason why we continue to do it and how... um, activists in the community and community mothers and fathers and everyday people who've lost their jobs in the coal mine and then in Uniontown people have lost have lost their jobs as a result of not having any jobs factories are shut down same thing you know so we are all looking for hope and I'm here to see how I can you know get some hope myself to take back you know and also love to work alongside any kind of way that I can here as well that's mm-hmm. terrific yeah that there's so many um pressures and efforts to divide us but when we actually hear each other's stories and see where we live I think it can really bring people together yes we are more alike than we are different and we oftentimes use that as a cliche but I often say if there is no box so we always talk about think outside of the box there really is no box and if we see that there is no box and we can come to the table and really listen to how others, such as what um, Apple Shop and the Culture Hub and Lecture County and all the surrounding counties and the surrounding you know municipalities here have worked together around a common issue of needing community and needing communal spaces and wanting to own that and wanting their voices to not only be heard, but their voices to have power beyond power. I think that transcends all communities throughout our nation and particularly in the time that we are now, we're looking for ways in which we can have value and that value we have is our voice. And what I see what you all are doing here in Lecture County and um, other spaces as well in Kentucky, I'm thinking that's anywhere, that's anywhere America, (laughs) you know, throughout, probably globally, absolutely as well. And I have the energy and the spirit right now to get up and drive six hours and to say, even if there are some people in the Black Belt or rural Alabama who are thinking we can't trust those people, you know, (laughs) what are they doing? What do they know? They don't know anything. I have enough energy and spirit to say, let's go and investigate this and to bring it back to the community. And then also to say, hey, Kentucky, how can I help support you? How can I be be a fly on the wall to help, you know, myself become educated on what your needs are, but also use me as a, as a tool to educate as well about other things that are happening in Alabama. Yeah, well, we may we'll have to organize an exchange. <laughs> yes. It would be great. I think that would be great. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, there, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think the biggest thing I would like to add is reminding ourselves that all humanity are equal and equality is a beautiful thing but the equity of our knowledge the equity of our value the equity of our communication the equity of our voices the equity of our contributions of our communities cannot be lost and i would say to all communities that it's up to you as a community to do what you need to do for yourself nobody else is going to do it for you do not look for anybody to save you you are not a victim to way, the way to get out of the victim mentality is to take your power back and to create the community that you want to have and believe that you can do it. That's great. 
Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the six hours and the up and the six more hours back to come here. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, your mountain community radio station, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. In this episode, we're learning from two women writers who use the power of words to celebrate, honor, and heal the rural communities from which they come. We just heard an interview Mimi Pickering did with Salam Green about the history of environmental devastation and organizing in the Black Belt of Alabama and her work to offer writing workshops as a strategy towards healing for her community. Next, we'll hear from Kentucky food writer Ronnie Lundy, who spoke at the spring 2018 What's Next EKY gathering in Hindman, Kentucky. in my contract that I don't follow Robert Guype. I don't know if you all know Robert Guype, but no one should ever follow Robert Guype. But after these two gentlemen just spoke so eloquently, I might might just change that to, I don't follow anybody from Eastern Kentucky. They know how to talk. (laughs) Um, And that's how I grew up, with a a family that gathered around uh, a round oak table and ate food and told stories and talked long into the night um, about everything, um, about funny things, about serious things. Um, Al Cross and I were just reminiscent about Prairie Journal Louisville Times days. And I was saying how my family subscribed to both newspapers and we read them from one end to the other every single day and talked about what was in them. Uh, and we weren't even, I wouldn't say we were a particularly political family, but it was, it was what we wanted to know. We wanted to know story, and story is what my work has been about. And I'm gonna to talk to you about that tonight. Um, the title of my book is Vittles, and Vittles is the absolute correct, and always has been correct, English pronunciation of the word that is spelled V-I-C-T-U-A-L-S, meaning we've been right all along. Ha ha, take that, Granny Yoakum. Um, So, Vittles has a subtitle, and the subtitle is An Appalachian Journey with Recipes. And I want to talk to you a bit about my journey, and I'm not going to give you recipes, um, um, uh, except to tell you do not put sugar in your cornbread. I really don't have to say that to this group, right? We're all on the page? Okay, good. But I'm not going to give you recipes, but I am going to give you ingredients. The ingredients, uh, certain ingredients that I found on my journey to produce this book that I think maybe you all can find useful as well. I was going to say something about, you know, you're the cooks, you can take these ingredients. I was getting all tongue-waggled in a really bad um, series of metaphors, and I got worried that James Still and Harriet Arno would rise up and bash me in the head. So so I'm just going to give you ingredients and you can do what you will. Um, 
this was, you have to understand that, that John opened this restaurant in 2002 before we had terms like locavore or before we talked about, we might talk about organic food, but we didn't talk about sustainable farming at that time. It, it was a whole different era. And, but, but people were starting to be interested in that kind of food. And what John said was that his brother Robert went to Charleston and opened a restaurant there, the Hominy Grill, and Robert won lots of James Beard Awards. But what John said was that despite the Beard Awards and accepting seafood, he had landed in a catbird seat by landing in Appalachia because every other chef in the country of his age that he knew who was interested in this idea of, of representing the region that you were in or, or sourcing, everybody who was interested in sourcing locally at that time had to prime the pump. They had to go to farmers and say, would you grow this for me so I can use it in my restaurant? Would you grow this kind of heirloom tomato that I found on you know, this kinky uh, seed website uh, so I could have a tomato that tasted like a tomato? Would you, would you grow this plant for me? And John Stelling said all he had to do was get in his beat up old station wagon and drive 20 miles outside of Asheville and stop at a farm stand or stop at a farm itself when he would see a farmer out in the yard or somebody with a garden working their garden. He would stop and he'd start a conversation and he'd say, what, what's that you're growing there? What kind of a what well, what kind of a squash is this? You know, it looks like a giant orange watermelon with ridges. And somebody would say, "Well, that's a candy roaster, son. Have you never had a candy roaster?" And and he would go home and, and cook it up and eat it, and it would be on a, on his menu. Or he would find something like clay peas. Um, I didn't. I had already written a book about. Appalachian food, and I've written a book about southern beans uh, called Butter Beans to Blackberries, Southern Beans and Vegetables, and I have never heard of clay peas, and you know, I'm a mountain girl. I didn't know that we grew that many field peas, but lo and behold, there's this beautiful little red pea that we grow, it's field pea, that we grow up in the mountains, and it tastes like the mountains. It tastes like minerals. It has a, it has what my mother called a wang to it, which is uh, when I have to explain a wang, I say that's Appalachian umami, people. Um, anyway, uh, and it was a beautiful food, and, and he didn't have to ask someone to grow it for him. He found it being grown in the region, and he found not only greasy beans, but like 12 varieties of greasy beans, and, and they could be cooked in different ways, and you could taste them and make something special out of it specific to that time and place. And, and he said, you know, people who come to the Appalachian Mountains, they want to know the place that they're in. They want to taste it. And that became his passion. But what John said to, that I thought was so interesting in talking further about this is that this gift that he had, this, this range of farmers and people who were growing uh, heirloom seeds that they had saved, foods that were distinct to the region, and who were growing them based on the the quality of their land, the place where the sunlight hit, you know, you plant one of your beans here and you plant your tomatoes somewhere else because they need different kinds of sunlight. And you might have another bean back in another part because it grows better back there. It's, it was a consciousness of the land itself, an awareness and an understanding, and an understanding of the climate. 
um, an understanding of the fact that we are a southern larder. Appalachian foods are based on the same principles as the rest of the South, but we are a southern larder with a winter, a bitter winter, a super cold winter, shortened growing seasons. So we develop foods that we can eat through the winter. You go deeper south, they continue growing those beans. They continue getting those melons and tomatoes, and the food continues on with just a very short gap there. We have a big gap. We've got a Cumberland Gap up here, you know? It's like a cold time that, that you're not getting something out of the garden. So we create shuck beans, our leather bridges, our shucky beans, our fodder beans. But y'all know what I'm talking about. And, and we put up green beans and corn. We ferment them. And we make sour corn and pickled beans, or pickled corn and sour beans. We don't necessarily agree on what we call these things, but, but we make all these foods. We, make, we dry apples so that we can have fried apple pies, and then we can also make this glorious thing called an apple stack cake. These foods I've just named to you, they don't show up anywhere else in, in, in American culinary history, except in the Ozarks or in places where Appalachians settled. These, these are distinctly Appalachian foods. And we learn to do this because of the disadvantage of having shortened growing seasons and a, a deep winter. And we learn to save our seeds because of the disadvantage of being um, a sustainable economy instead of a purchasable economy. Um, and, and we learn to work with what we have, the land that we have, and the weather that we have, and the minerals and resources that we have, and the time that we have. And, and these are all things that we've been told are disadvantageous to us, right? We've been told to move away. We've been told if we wanna, if we wanna grow food, go out there in the Midwest when there's all that flat land. Well, guess what? Now out there in the Midwest, there's one corn. You know, uh, and it, it's not the magical one cornbread, one god corn. It's it's just a monoculture of corn, or a monoculture of soybeans, or a monoculture of wheat. And over here in Appalachia, we have kids right now that are finding corns and and rye and buckwheat and wheat flowers that that have these amazing names, you know, of Bloody Butcher and German Rye and uh, Cherokee, this, that, and the other. We have, we have all of this amazing diversity that has been born out of adversity. So one of the first lessons that I had in this book, in writing this book, was to adjust my thinking and to learn to think about the possibility that disadvantage was really a blessing and a gift. That if you can learn how to work with it and adapt to it, you can make something pretty extraordinary out of it. And that flies in the face of, of what we've been told to do in our culture. Become, become more like everyone else. Make things more like the rest of the world. Um, don't you want this mountain flattened out and made into flatland that you can plant a lot of vines on? Um, no, maybe not. Maybe we want that mountain to remain a mountain because we can grow up at things that people on, in the flatland are not growing. So that was one of the ingredients that I got. Change the way that you're thinking. Right? 
Then a second piece of this journey happened in 2011. So I, I, I wrote the first book proposal. If there's anybody in here who's here to be encouraged to um, write a cookbook for fun and profit, um, you're in the wrong room. Um, <laughs> uh, I can tell you, you can write it for heart and soul. I'm way down with that. But I wrote the first proposal for this book in 2008, and I probably wrote 12 other proposals before it sold in 2014. In 2011, I rewrote the proposal to accommodate a study that was done by ethnobotanist Gary Nobin, and botanical anthropologist, I think he is, Jim Vitetto. And these guys are, Gary Nobin is especially famous among seed savers and people who are very knowledgeable about American and Mesoamerican foodways. It's his life work. He and Jim is a young man who had been working in Western North Carolina, was doing his uh, postgraduate work with Gary Nobin in Arizona. And Jim said, Gary, I think that um, Appalachia, Southern Appalachia, is this remarkable food shed. Why don't you let me go start documenting all the things that I know? And so he did. Uh, Jim came back and he documented the varieties of beans and apples and corn that he could find that we were growing and the varieties of wild foods that people still foraged and still ate from, not just the ramps that everybody's eating and not just that poke salad that you better pick at the right time or not eat, but all the different kinds of beautiful little plants that people knew either how to eat or cure themselves are used in some sort of uh, edible, medicinal way. And he talked to people about hunting practices and what they hunted and what they cooked and what animals were available. And you have to understand that, that we're starting here from the premise that, that Southern Appalachia is an incredibly biodiverse region. It is a temperate rainforest. So the things that we can grow, the things that grow naturally and live naturally here in the water, on the land, in the forest, they are so diverse already to begin with. But, but what was interesting and what Jim was doing was he was also talking with the people of the region about how they had maintained that diversity when the rest of America and much of the world in the same time period was losing strains of corn, was losing strains of beans, was, was getting apples down to the five that you can buy in the store that, you know, are now you can buy 12 and they're all sons of delicious. But, um, but you know, Jim's going, why, why, why do you have a thousand, a thousand different documented varieties of apples in Appalachia? And people were telling him, they were telling him um, about their grandfathers who grafted four apple trees, four apple branches on the same tree so that he could have an apple in every season of the year. Right? Or, or how this seed was passed from one family to another and the story behind it, et cetera, et cetera. And so what Jim, Jim and Gary discovered that Southern Appalachia is the second largest food basket in, North, in, in the Western Hemisphere, and the largest one in North America. I mean, that's amazing. Think about that. Think about that in terms of the resources that we know that we have here. Think about that as a resource 
that we understand how to support it and cultivate it and nurture it and continue it, how it could in turn support us in a sustainable circle. And that's part of what Jim found. What Jim found was it wasn't just that all this stuff was naturally here or that your great-grandfather did this and we could look it up in a book and replicate it. What he found was that the people of the region have been using their wisdom and their knowledge to keep this alive, to keep this amazing food chain alive. That was, that was not just the place itself, but that was an act of the people. And by listening to these people, we could begin to understand how to continue this and to do it. We didn't need to go look somewhere else. It was the wisdom of our place was right here. So that was the second ingredient that I got with this book. Now the third piece of my journey has to do with all low, all those many years, I wandered in the desert of New York publishing trying to convince them that this temperate rainforest was worthy of their attention. Um, and, um, it, you know, I, it, it won't surprise you all to hear the usual stories that I heard. I, I mentioned last night that uh, toward the, I thought I had a great publisher. She, she was talking about a real book with photography and you know really digging into it. And then she sent me a note and said, Is, it's okay with you if we drop Appalachia from the subtitle because of the association with poverty. Uh, to which I said, bye. <laughs> <You know? laughs> nice, nice talking to you. And, and I had to say goodbye to other publishers from the region who understood the story and got it, but could not afford to send me out to do the research that I needed to do. Um, I, got, I got offers to write another version of, a, a version of a food memoir. Write about your family, write about their Appalachian experience, and tell the world that that is Appalachia. And now you got to understand that, that I, I was born in Corbin, I grew up in Louisville, but as many of you know, we went up home all the time. We went up home on weekends, we went up home for vacations, we had three or four family reunions every summer. Um, it, it was a part of my experience, but, but my family trees go back four to seven generations in the Appalachian Mountains. So I, I get to say that I am Appalachian. I get to speak. But there's no way that one person's story could possibly begin to, to encompass the incredible diversity of Appalachia. And this is something that was very hard for me to explain um, because people have been told that we are a monoculture and people are, have been told that we have been isolated, that we, you know, we don't have immigrant communities. And what I had to talk about, what I wanted to talk about in the food and the foodways, what I had to talk about was the African-American uh, experience in Appalachia, uh, which begins with the salt the salt industry, which is the first extractive industry in Appalachia, which begins in the late 1700s. I had to talk about the industrial background of Appalachia, which begins in the 1700s. We're not this agrarian world. I needed to talk about why every cookbook that you pick up from a coal town in the southern Appalachians will have a recipe for Hungarian goulash 
or paprikash, chicken paprikash, or hunky stew in it. I had to explain pepperoni rolls. Um, I wanted to talk about when, I wanted to talk about, and didn't have the opportunity um, in this book, maybe there will be a son of Bill's, um, but I wanted to talk about the Spanish chorizo that is made in West Virginia and how Astorians from Spain came into the region as late as the 1950s. I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to tell the story, if you open up Vittles and you look at in the first couple of pages, you'll see that there's a spread of Chattanooga, you know, a cityscape of Chattanooga. That's there because I wanted my photographer to take that picture and I wanted it in the early part of the book because I want people to understand that there's such a thing as urban Appalachia as well. I wanted people to get this whole picture and my story doesn't come close to the whole picture. It gives me the right to ask the questions and it gives me a right to, I, I, right is the wrong word actually, I debate that. That's another, that's another meeting. But, but it gives me an entry into asking the questions and talking to the people and saying, your story is a part of mine. Can, can I tell it? Can I try to tell your words? And this comes back again to a piece of that first ingredient, which is that if we're going to create sustainable economies, um, and food can be a part of a sustainable economy, but it cannot be the entire answer. It has to be a piece of whatever a specific community needs it to be. If you're over in Asheville, it can be a piece of, of um, brew culture and hipster culture and uh, being in big food magazines. And if you're in Corbin, it needs to be a piece of creating something beautiful that people can be proud of in a restaurant, but affordable for the people in your community as well and welcoming to them as well. And, and you cannot just have a farm, a, a couple of kids or a seventh generation that wants to farm and you give them money to farm and you don't connect them with someone who can use their products and, and you don't create a system that can get the products back and forth to them. Again, it's, it's sustainable, like this whole concept of sustainable and it's difficult, just like our story of difficulty, but all those things make it really rich and give us tremendous, tremendous possibilities. And this is the other piece that I had learned from that journey. So these are the things that I felt like maybe I could leave with you all. Like I said, you're the leaders, uh, you're the cooks. Um, I wish that Pat and Jerry Lundy were here to um, find out that their daughter was actually talking to the leaders of Eastern Kentucky. They would just be um, a little shocked and extremely proud and then they would have a few things to tell you. And my father would say, stress what I just said about, listen to the people of the region. They have the wisdom. Every community has, it's just like every plot of garden. Every community has different light and different soil and um, a different weather pattern. And you know, you know if you take your mamma's uh, greasy beans and you plant him over in your holler, which is on the other side of the ridge, after about three years, your greasy beans and her greasy beans are gonna be different. 
They'll both be good, but they will be different because they're planted in different places. We have to learn to listen to the individual communities and the people in those communities. They have the wisdom. They understand how it's going to work and what will work for them. And we don't need any more for someone to come tell us what we ought to do. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring Salem Green of the Uniontown, Alabama Black Belt Citizens and Kentucky food writer Ronnie Lundy. Both women are writers using words to honor and heal the rural communities from which they come. Music on this episode features the June Apple recordings of Morgan Sexton doing a tune called Pretty Little Miss in the Garden and Pat Brewer picking a tune called Willow Garden. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio from the heart of the hills, right here in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Returning home to my baby.